Welcome to Wine Splaining, the podcast that peels back the journey of women shaping the wine business. Stoked to be talking to Emily Toe of J Bricks for a lot of reasons. I've had the distinct pleasure of doing many events with Emily over the years. From in-person wine tastings to online classes or wine dinners, I can always count on Emily not only to be a legit pro, but also a good time. My favorite part about our conversations is how chill and easygoing Emily seems. Then out of nowhere, she'll inevitably drop some crazy wine knowledge bomb or the perfect zinger when you least expect it. Emily, along with her high school sweetheart and now husband, Jody, truly are Jay Bricks. It has been said that their motto in wine and in life in general is only love. And you truly can taste that love in every wine they make. So I encourage you to pop open one of their bottles while you're listening to this interview. Unless you're driving, then please wait until later to taste the love. And welcome, Emily, to Winesplaining. Thank you so much. All right. So let's kind of start at the beginning. Uh, Tell me where you grew up. I grew up in South Florida, just outside of Fort Lauderdale. Okay. What was uh, your childhood like in uh, South Florida? Well, I'm the oldest of five children, so it was always busy, never boring. And uh, yeah, my father was a sports writer and my mom was um, the pianist in the church choir. So we were always full of uh, full of adventure. That's cool. When you were growing up, what did you want to be? What did you want to do with your life? That is a great question. So I loved reading and writing. And I think because I came from a family where I realized it was possible to make a living as a writer, that was one of the things that I imagined myself doing sometime in the future. Okay. So when did you find yourself in San Diego? What led you there? Well, my parents moved out to San Diego right after Jody and I got married in 1997, We went to visit them at Thanksgiving and immediately fell in love with the city and the beauty of it all. And it was kind of my first time ever being in that area. And it just seemed like a perfect place to live. And since we were just married and just starting out in our careers, it was a a doable thing for us to just pack up and move out and see what happened. Okay, then. So let's back it up because I, for some reason, just figured you met Jody in San Diego because you guys are so... San Diego to me. Uh, when did you meet Jody? We met in 1992, the summer before our senior year of high school in Florida. We both got a summer job at a frozen yogurt shop, and that was the beginning and the end. <laughs> okay, so frozen yogurt to wine. There's a connection there, I'm sure. Uh, so you got married. How old were you when you got married? Uh, just almost 22. So almost 22. very, very young. Yes, wow. Okay, so... Out of high school, did you guys go to college in in Florida? We did. So we went up to Tallahassee for college, which is about 450 miles away, uh, up to Florida State. And so that was um, just about a year or so after we met. We kind of went away to college together and dated all through college and then uh, got married after graduation. So what were you studying in college? My major is creative writing. Okay, so your parents decided to move to San Diego, and then you guys followed newly 
married. You said you were working on both of your careers. What were your careers at that point? So Jody's background is in landscape and horticulture. His degree is in horticulture. So he was working for a landscaping company. And I had been working for a publishing company in Florida that kept me on as um, a freelancer, basically. So I was working from home, taking on writing assignments. And Wow. Work from home back then. All the way back then, it was so novel. <laughs> Nobody could believe that I could actually do it. Well, that's cool. Uh, so at this point, you're in San Diego. Is this, I know you also have children together. Is When did, when did that first happen? Because I know, I mean, to look at Emily, you wouldn't believe that she has children the age that she does. So it had to have been really young. Yeah, it was. So our, our daughter, our first child was born in October 1999. And uh, then our son came along in 2003. Okay, 99 and 2003. So at what point did wine come into the picture? Let's, let's start with the wine journey. Yeah, so even when we were in college, we were not like party drinkers. We would, Jody was a great cook and he grew up in a family where his stepfather was a chef and his mom ran a catering department for a hotel. So he was always around great restaurants, good food, you know, chefs who were friends of the family. And so that was how he came up. So he did a lot of cooking when we were in college. And so we would kind of save up and, you know, splurge for like the bottle of Kendall Jackson if it was going to be a really great dinner on a weekend. You know, that was the the kind of, of drinking that we were doing. So we, we started more in wine than, you know, like beer or cocktails or anything like that. So it was always sort of went along with food for us. And then as we, you know, grew up and our tastes matured and, you know, we, we still would kind of gravitate towards wine. Um, and then when we really started getting into it, uh, my brother worked for an importer and he was living locally. And so he would go out during the day to see accounts and sell wine. And then he'd come over for dinner with a bag full of, you know, eight or 10 open bottles um, from, he was focusing on on European wine. So that was where we first started educating our palates because we could taste all these different wines without having to go out and buy them and and just learning more about different regions and styles and varieties. And so it became kind of a hobby for us. And then I guess what we learned through tasting all those European wines was we started to get a sense for um, the idea of the idea of terroir, where you can taste a wine and there's something in it that kind of reaches out and grabs you and says, "There's more to the story. This is from somewhere." You know, there's there's soil that you want to find out about, and there's climate. And so, the first time that we tasted a bottle like that from California, uh, it turned out to be a Pinot Noir um, that was made from fruit from the Biennecito Vineyard, which at the time we knew nothing about because we were learning about European wine. And so we weren't paying that much attention to what was right in our own backyard until we tasted that wine. And it was that same sense of just something reached out from the bottle and said, you have to find out what this story is. So we called up the the winery. This was around 2007. Called them up, just said, hey, we love your wine. And they were glad to hear from us and said, well, you know, it's our 10th anniversary as a winery. And so we're having a, a party in the vineyard and you should definitely come. And it turned out that was our 10th wedding anniversary year. So we said, oh, but this is great. This is meant to be. So we went uh, and, you know, landed there in the Biennecito Vineyard for the first time, which is, of course, one of California's most iconic special sites and just felt that there it was. You know, here we are. This is where we live. And this is this is something special. And it turned out, you know, not only the site was special, but the people were special. We became great friends that night. And by 
two or three in the morning, they had convinced us to come back and help with harvest in a couple of months when that started. And when we did that was really the first time that we got an understanding of what wine really was all about, starting with grapes at, you know, before sunrise, working all day, actually turning that fruit into what would become the wine that had something to say to us. And we were hooked. What makes that site so special for people that, you know, aren't familiar? It's just a combination of, of there's almost a, it's, it's kind of inexplicable. There's something, I mean, you can look at soil studies and you can look at, at vine age and, you know, it was one of the first vineyards planted in the Santa Maria Valley and, you know, the, the transverse, the air, the, the way that the ocean breeze comes and goes. And, and there are all of these things that, you know, that you can read and write about, but there's just a sense that you can't explain, but there's something about it that just feels really special. And I don't know how that expresses itself exactly. You know, um, you can't quantify it, but but it's there. It's just magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you said Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir was the one that we tasted. Yes, they grow a number of other varieties there, but that was the one that that reached out and shook us by the shoulders. And I should mention that we had not seen the movie Sideways. <laughs> the Merlot ruining movie. <laughs> the, the Yeah, the, the whole Central Coast. I mean, everything. We saw it years after we had gotten ourselves ensconced in the community there. And then it was just kind of alternately hilarious and shocking because we knew all these people now. You know, we'd been to all these places without that. that hang- I feel like if we had seen that movie before any of this happened, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> Okay, so good on that. Uh, so after this moment of you going back up there and helping with harvest, what what was the next step? So you you kind of have the magic magical winemaking bug, and we all know that it's not as glamorous as some people might might think it is. But uh, you were out there doing the hard work, so obviously that appealed to you guys. What what happened next? Well, it did appeal to us, and so we wanted to know what what came after that because the harvest season, of course, you know, is all hands on deck. It's crazy. It's sticky. It's messy. But then there are a number of other steps that have to happen before the wine ends up in a bottle on your table. So we just continued to come and see our friends during the different parts of the year where they were, you know, racking, moving the wine from one barrel to another, when they would be um, bottling all of those, those different parts of the story. So we got hands-on experience for a couple of years, just in every facet of winemaking. So were you making your own wine at that point, or you were just helping out for free and just for fun? helping out for free and for fun, learning the ropes and getting to hang out with our friends and be part of something cool. It was a couple of years of that when we started to think, well, why don't we just make a little bit of our own wine? You know, we, we, we can do it. We've got a two-car garage that we can park our cars on the street and I'm sure that we can make it happen uh, on on a super small scale which is what we did and it it just it happened really organically once we thought we'd go ahead and try it because we had friends and so we were looking for you know I don't know maybe we didn't want to start with Pinot Noir that felt sort of sacrilegious so (laughs) we decided to start with Grenache which turns out is almost just as finicky as Pinot Noir to work with but since it was it was just for fun we really weren't too worried about it our you know friend connected us with somebody he knew who was growing Grenache who was going to sell us some and then some of our friends gave us some barrels that they weren't using anymore and so it just it all came together and so in 2009 we made a ton and a half um we 
purchased a ton and a half of fruit and made three barrels of wine in our garage. Beautiful. So for people maybe listening who might want to aspire to go the same route, what did that look like making one in your garage? Like, how did you get the grapes there? Like, how, how did that happen? So we rented a refrigerated truck and picked up the grapes at the vineyard at sunrise after they were picked and drove them back home. Um, the truck had a, uh, a lift gate and we had a pallet jack that we had bought from somebody at a warehouse that was going out of business. And so we parked the car on the street outside the house and pallet jacked the, the fruit up a little incline and into the garage, and uh, that's how we moved everything around. And at this point, were you making wines naturally, or were you using, you know, commercial yeast? I mean, for me, if I was just starting, I would probably want to use all the tricks to make sure everything's okay, but I know you're very much, you know, a natural winemaker now, so how was this first round? Yeah, the first round, um, we, you know, we had all the tricks on hand, mm-hmm. And we decided to to just sort of see how it went. And uh, the fermentation moved really quickly, really well. So we didn't feel like we needed to um, to do that. But, you know, it's all of our, our conventional winemaker friends thought we were a little bit crazy. <laughs> and we were nervous, too. But uh, but it, it worked. And um, so we just felt pretty good about the whole thing. Right on. So what did you do with those three barrels? We bottled them uh, later on and labeled them. I mean, the labels that you see on the the wines today are the same ones that we designed for the original Garage Vintage. Yeah, we couldn't sell it, of course, but we were doing it on a level that, you know, that we meant business, even though we didn't really mean business. So, no, our our friends and family got got many gifts of wine um, from that vintage Grenache for days. Grenache and Syrah. I forgot to mention there was some Syrah in that mix. (laughs) Oh, right on. So at this point, you guys were both working your regular job still? Oh, yeah. 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 And this was just, you know, a little hobby. Exactly. And so how, how long did this go on the way that was in the garage? Well, so a few months in, when we the wines were in barrel, it was kind of around the holidays, um, a friend of ours came to visit, and he was a winemaker, and he tasted the wines and said, you guys, I really, you know, this this is really good. Like, I think you've got something going here. You should think, you should think about this, and you should keep doing this. And we had wanted to keep doing it, and we thought the wine was good, but how did we really know for sure? And uh, But that, that gave us just, I think, enough confidence to think, okay, well— this maybe we can do this maybe maybe even though we didn't intend for this to be a real thing or a business or maybe we maybe it could be so that was when we started pursuing the the whole you know licensing and all of that and so um around 2012 is when we really became um like a real winery that we could uh, we could make and sell and do all the things so in 2012, so between that time you were, you know, just working on getting your permitting and things like that. What did you have to find a new space? I mean, I'm, I, you probably yes, didn't we did. permit your garage. No, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not so easy to do. Yeah, we had a small a small space in a, a warehouse um, facility that was already a winery where they let us have a, a little portion of the area. Okay, so like a custom crush kind of facility, or they just let you... They just let us have a spot. Break off a piece. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this was in San Diego? hmm And at this point, 
are you so you've made this decision you you went through the permitting you've got a little space so what do you do are you ramping up production are you still having normal jobs or yes both we we were ramping up production but only it's always been just the two of us so it, everything every single cent that we made we were putting back into the winery so Jody worked a full-time job up until just a year and a half ago. No way. Yeah. Just <laughs> that's how long it takes. So for everybody who thinks this is a great business plan, I, I am here to tell you it is decidedly not. <laughs> it's a crazy passion project plan that, you know, you, you uh, because all of his vacation time he would have to use during harvest. Uh-huh. And so I was also working full time. I've, I've been able to do just the winery full time for about six years now. But um, for him, it was a lot longer slog. So you've, for six years, you've been at the winery full time. Yes. And what does that look like? I mean, I know you know, like you said, it's it's just the two of you and you guys do so much. And, you know, we've talked to winemakers and I think probably people listening to this have a sense that, you know, it isn't this glamorous thing. And there is so much involved with making wine that doesn't even have to involve making wine. I mean, there's a lot of the business part of things. And so what is your day to day for the last six years? Yeah. So it's it's true that the the making part is one crazy whirlwind that happens over a couple of months. And then, right, so then you've got to deal with everything else in between. So as far as the seller goes, yes, you're keeping your barrels topped up. You're managing your inventory. Um, I do a lot of work with our distributors as far as just releases. Um, I do all of the label design and the customer contact, so the emailing, the social media, the um, just the kind of the day-to-day as far as planning, I mean, Jody and I work together on all the strategic planning, but, and especially before COVID, I was the one on the road. So I would be traveling a lot, meeting different distributors, working in different markets, doing different festivals, and then just the, the work of compliance. So there's plenty of filing that has to happen. Um, every state that you have a distributor in has a different rule about uh, what kind of filing you have to do, whether you have to pay taxes, whether it's monthly or annually or not at all. And so that's, you know, a lot to keep up with. It's definitely not glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately, I haven't been down to visit your winery, but are you, I I would imagine you're not still in that same little corner? No. So in 2013, we moved into a much larger warehouse um, that we share with another winery. Oh, cool. So it's like, Half and half situation. Well, no. So they're kind of the landlord. So they own the major equipment, mm. and then it's just kind of like a, a rental situation where we rent our space there, and we can, you know, share the equipment as well. And do you have a tasting there as well? So we do tastings kind of privately by appointment. We don't have a, a dedicated tasting room, but mm. when people want to come and see us, we just kind of set up in the barrel area and hang out there. So speaking of barrels. From that first three barrels, uh, what? How many barrels do you have now? Just we curious. have about eighty-five barrels now, uh, as well as the use of some stainless steel tanks that we work with as well. So, depending on the year, the vintages have varied a little bit over the past couple of years, but um, we're between two and three thousand cases. 
Great. So, yeah, I, I feel like that's so cool that you guys um, kind of started natural from the beginning. I, not everybody does, especially in this kind of a scenario. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about San Diego in particular, because I know that you do work with some fruit there. And, you know, I, San Diego, I don't think is like maybe the greatest reputation for grapes or grape growing. And I know Temecula has a certain kind of reputation, but I know that you're really kind of champion, championing, championing um, the area. And I know you're still sourcing fruit from all over, but talk to me about growing grapes in San Diego. Sure. So San Diego, believe it or not, was actually the first place that grapes were planted in California because it's, you know, when the friars started the missions, San Diego was the first mission. And that was how grapes sort of, you know, cultivated grapes made it to California um, and worked their way up north. But what happened during Prohibition, everything was torn out. And then the agriculture industry rebounded with avocados and citrus. So grapevines were never replanted and there weren't any kind of plantings that were spared um, that made it. So as other regions of California planted vines, you know, in the, the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, that didn't happen in San Diego because the land was already being used for other things that honestly make a lot more money. So um, so it just already doesn't have that that history of vines being there for 40, 50, 60 years. Um, so mostly what's there, although there is one, one, the oldest vineyard that we can find around town was planted in the early 80s. And then just about everything else has been put in in the last 10 to 15 years. Okay. So because of that, there isn't that kind of wine industry or wine community that you, when you think about Santa Barbara, or you think about Napa or Santa Cruz or, you know, um, even further up north, like, or east Contra Costa County, those kinds of places. It doesn't exist so much in San Diego. Um, there are a lot of smaller kind of hobby vineyards where people will have, you know, an acre or two, and they'll have a little tasting room on their property and sell the wine there. But you just don't see a lot of it out in the market because it doesn't exist. What do you think the future of wine in San Diego is? I mean, I know it sounds almost very similar to Los Angeles, you know, mm -hmm. where there was also vines all throughout Altadena and they got ripped out through right. Prohibition. And that's the only reason San Antonio winery is still around because they made wine for the church. Uh, but, you know, there is kind of a little resurgence of vineyards in Los Angeles County. So, I mean, I feel like the future is kind of bright for Los Angeles. How, how do you feel about San Diego? I, I feel like I've been hearing about some people who are attempting it, you know, who have a kind of higher elevation properties that they're looking to put in vines and see how it goes. So I think it's it's going to be a waiting game because, you know, it takes so long for vineyards to get established and then to see if it's a good idea or not. So I think we just have to be patient with San Diego and see what happens. So often we talk about... Um Climate control and, and the effects of the regions and winemaking and, you know, different winemakers have different, you know, whether it's fires or drought or all the all the things. Uh, how do you think San Diego will fare during this kind of time in our earth? Well, I think that a number of the vineyards that have been put in in the last 10 to 15 years that we were talking about have been have been put in with an eye towards that. Mm -hmm. So with an eye towards, you know, San Diego 
is a desert, let's face it. Whether we're in a drought or not, it is desert land. And so a lot of them are dry farmed whenever possible. And that's been a goal of, of the people who have been installing them. So I think that's a real positive that they've been able to be successfully dry farmed. And now we've had all this nice rain. And so I think at least for the next year or two, we, we should be good. But yeah, it's always, it's a concern. I mean, so many things that go into farming, it's really tough right now, no matter what you're farming to, to project what's it going to look like five or 10 years from now. Yeah. I mean, we all, none of us have a crystal ball, unfortunately. Do you feel like there's certain varietals, like indigenous varietals or varietals that really lend themselves to the region? What we've seen are the, the Southern Rhone varieties seem to be the most compelling as far as the wine that results from them. So people have tried everything, you know, you'll find little hobby farms with all Cabernet or Chardonnay. And it seems like from the fruit that we've worked with, like we've, we've worked with some Senso that's been fantastic uh, for rosé and as a red for for a blend. Um, we make a Kunwas that is a super fun, chillable red. You know, kind of the more unusual, I guess, southern Rhone grapes, they like the hot climate. They don't seem to mind the, the fact that it doesn't get that cold at night. But these are all considerations that you have to take into, you know, think about, um, especially when you're picking, because it's true, it's, it's not going to be as cold at night in San Diego ever as it's going to be in Santa Barbara. We don't get the 50, 60 degree temperature shifts. And so you need varieties that, you know, can hold on to their acidity for a little while that, um, that you can pick early and still make something fun and delicious. And like with whites, um, we do a white blend that is Grenache Blanc, Picpoul, and Vermentino, and that's just super fun. Those grapes do really well. So, yeah, it's exciting to see. They're different grapes than you'll find in a lot of other regions in California, and I think that's a big positive as well as far as differentiating San Diego from other regions. Have you thought about planting your own vineyard there? You know, every once in a while we think about it and then we kind of like shake ourselves and say, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, we never say never. Uh, but what I've seen in friends who have kind of gone from what we do, which is sourcing fruit from everywhere and kind of getting to pick exactly what you want to work with to farming their own land is that it just it takes away a lot of your time. So you can't really focus on vineyards all over the state. You have to focus on on your small parcel. Mm -hmm. And so that can be great if you've got everything you want there. But land is expensive and uh, and it doesn't, like I said, never say never. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it's not in the immediate um, forecast. Got it. Um, and we've mentioned, so it is kind of um, a two-person show here at Bricks, and I had no idea that you, you guys had full-time jobs for so long, especially Jody, just from a year and a half ago. Uh, do you ever think about bringing anybody else on or hiring another person, or do you want to just kind of keep it at the 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 two of you just going for it? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the facility that we work um, through they, you know, they have a larger production than we do. And so they have some seller people who they employ, who, uh, who help us out from time to time. So, you know, there, there are people there. And yeah, it, I think as we grow, it, that would be a possibility, you know, in the future, or if the time comes to find the perfect spot for a tasting room to open, then yeah, we would, you know, want to have the perfect person to manage that. And yeah, we do. I mean, people, people ask, and just because of the way the situation is set up where we don't, you know, the seller, we don't have employees there. Um, we've steered some people toward, you know, the other winery to see if maybe that's something they're interested in. Um, 
but yeah, in the future, who knows? So how is it working with um, your partner in life and partner in business? Is, is there challenges? I mean, you guys are high school sweethearts, so right there, that is just not usual. Uh, so you must have a, a strong foundation, but um, I'm sure it can be also tricky, or maybe you guys are just perfect. At oh, I wouldn't say we're perfect, <laughs> but we do enjoy working together. It's it's kind of always been a goal, I guess, even when Jody had his other job, it was nice to be able to have a thing that we did together that, you know, was really our thing. And our, our palettes are pretty similar, so we don't have a lot of arguments about wines and blending and, you know, when something's ready to bottle or when we need to get it out of the barrel. It's usually we're pretty simpatico as far as that goes. And it's fun to, to just be able to bounce your ideas off of somebody who gets it because winemaking is such a, a weird little niche that, you know, if you're not in it, I think it's hard sometimes to understand just like the fact that if anybody in my family or my friends decides to have their wedding in September, like I won't be able to be there. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but that's, it's happened so many times and it's hard because people just, you know, well, I mean, it's my wedding. What do you mean? Like, well, but I, I, I might have grapes coming in that day or like the bunch downs won't do themselves. So yeah, it's, I think overall uh, it's been great for us to um, to be able to work together and to kind of see this thing go from like a silly idea and something we did in our garage to, you know, a real thing. Yeah. I mean, again, like I said earlier, you can taste the love and I, I there's really never been a wine that you've made that I, I, I didn't love. So I think you guys are doing something right. Uh, I also feel like you have some really fascinating names for your wine. I don't know if that hails back to your degree in creative writing, um, like... You know, the Naughty Goblin Bubbles, which was also, I believe, New York Times Pet Nat of the Year. I mean, that's that's not nothing. Uh, what's the process of picking these names to go with the personality of the wine? Yeah, I, I feel like the wines sort of name themselves, and I just have to be open to it. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and be like, ah, okay, that's it. And then I'll have to get up and write something down. And yeah, it's it's just, I, I hope that, you know, it's an expression just like when you're naming your child. Like, you, you want it to be their personality. Like you want to learn something about the wine or at least get a sense of something from the names. And yeah, that is a, at least a way that I feel like I'm, I'm putting my degree to, to work by <laughs> coming up with names and getting to, to write, you know, a little bit on the back of each label about the different wines. And yeah, those are just all completely inspired by the wines. And it could be the, you know, the way that it tastes or the way that the light looks in the vineyard or just, just the way you feel, you know, when you, you're listening to a barrel ferment and it's crackling and alive and yeah it's it's a lot of fun I mean I know they're all your babies but is there a wine that you have made or are making that is like really you're just so excited about or, or your favorite or had been super challenging or anything <laughs> Uh, yeah, though well, you can't, you know, you can't pick favorites and it just depends on, on the day to day and how they're behaving and how you're feeling inside and whether you want to eat something, you know, that goes perfectly. But I, I think year in and year out, one of my favorites is, um, the Nominee Morris Skin Contact Pinot Gris. Um, Nominee Morris is Latin for In the Name of Love and that one just, it kind of came to, the idea to make it that way came to us when we tasted a, and a super ripe Pinot Gris grape that had been left from somebody else's pick before we were ever working with the fruit and just kind of burst in our mouth. And we felt like that, that 
sensation of prickly, almost jalapeno heat on the back of the tongue from the skin. And it's like, why haven't I ever had a, a Pinot Gris that tastes like this? You know, like, what's going on here? Let's see. Let's see what this is about. And yeah, so that that I look forward to that one every year. Maybe you can answer some, like, I'd love your opinion on Pinot Gris because I, I literally got one in yesterday to the shop and people have a debate whether it's a red grape or a white grape. And I mean, it's it's gris, it's gray, right? right so right. it's kind of like this pinkish gray color. Mm-hmm. But I always categorize them as orange wines when they have skin contact. Um, and some people put them as chilled red, like light yeah, reds. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. That's also how I ca- um, categorize them as orange wines because, I mean, yeah, it, it's not it's not a totally white grape, but it's also, you wouldn't, I mean, you've never seen a red Pinot Gris, right? Like, so, yeah. So I, I think that's probably the safest. Although somebody I talked to insisted that it was rosé and that was, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts. So I guess it's just a healthy debate. But yeah, I'm on Team Orange. <laughs> okay, cool. We're, we're together on this one. Uh, yeah, I guess there's no real technical answer. Maybe there is. And I'll hear about it after this. Uh, so what do you feel like is next for you guys? I, I mean, it's exciting that, you know, that you're both doing this full time and, and you're obviously doing something right. And, you know, I, I know you guys are really expanding and I'm always seeing you at festivals and I'm sure you're getting in other states and getting great press. So what what do you feel like is going to be the next step for Jaybricks? I think just to continue to to improve what we do you know that's what we're trying to do every year is we get to know the vines better and the vineyards and you know especially the, the ones that we've been working with for a long time um to be able to take the whole sum of the growing season whatever it throws at you and the last couple of years have been very different so we've had to uh to just really be tuned into the grapes yeah i, I just i just want the wines to be delicious and i'd love for them to be more delicious every year and <laughs> and to share them with as many people as possible Deliciousness is a great goal. Um, so, yeah, just before we, we sign out of here, if there's somebody listening and they maybe have this idea to go the same route that you and Jody went and just, you know, start helping people, maybe helping you with Harvest. <laughs> I'm sure you always need people. Uh, and, you know, start in their garage. Do you have any advice besides don't do it? <laughs> <laughs> I would just say be be sure, be prepared. Um, you know, if this is what you love, then then you can make it happen. But it is going to take every ounce of your extra time and some of your time that's not extra time and and your money. And it's you know, it's uh, it's a labor of love. So uh, if that's what you love, then I totally understand <laughs> because it's what I love, too. But um, just, yeah, I think eyes wide open is a good a good thing to uh, to keep in mind. Although, having said that, I think if I knew all of the the years and time and effort it was going to take, you know, maybe the safe route would have been to be like, oh no, no, this is ridiculous. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's 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 wonderful and exhausting, and um, but if it's what you love, then it, it's really not work. I think maybe the next new wine you do should be called Ignorance is Bliss. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep that in mind. <laughs> All right, Emily, thank you so much for talking to me. And uh, I can't wait to keep drinking your wine. Thanks so much for having me. All right, cheers. Cheers. Wine splaining. <laughs> <laughs>